Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Hey, Book Club gang. I am so happy to be able to talk to you this week. I am so glad to have this platform to be with all of you, because it's been a rough week, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit. You can check the show notes if you'd like to skip this, but I just want to say up front, I debated a little bit about whether we were going to talk about this today. But I decided that it was well needed to express our sadness at losing a member of our community this week. Case Lajerwai, frequent contributor to listener feedback and an all-around awesome guy, passed away last week. Um, he had been ill, and it really sucks. Really uh, sad. Yeah. I was at work when I found out, and it really affected me. I was having a really busy day. I was kind of having a shitty day, and it just kind of compounded on it. You know, this is a guy that I barely even knew. You know, he lived in Norway. We're here in Texas, but he was just really nice. The first time I talked about him on the podcast, I called him Keys Lager Wish or something like that. And he was so nice in uh, correcting me on how to pronounce his name correctly. He's he's had a lot of really good um, comments and commentary and a lot yeah. of his... Yeah. Comments were just really long, and he would take a, a long time to really explain his thoughts. And he's had some really excellent thoughts. And I was looking forward to talking with him about stuff for a long time. Right. It's just such a very awful feeling, you know, to know that. While I never actually met him in person, and we didn't, you know, we had we had known him for a short time. I did feel like we were really getting to know him well because he was right. very upfront about a lot of his feelings and thoughts and beliefs and his love of Mike Mignola's stuff and of Hellboy and all that. And so it is just really sad. And, you know, when I found out about it, I was, you know, I was at work as well. And I was just, oh, it's just really hit me very hard, even though, yeah, I, I know that we weren't like a huge part of his life, but we, he is um, a really good member of this little community of, of the Facebook group as well. And so it was just a really hard news and, um, it's just really very sad, but we um, are grateful and glad. I know that I can speak for everyone when I say this, for the time that we did get to spend with him. So that is wonderful that we did yeah. Yeah. get to know him for even a, a brief amount of time. I was friends with him on Facebook, and he was just a regular guy like any of us. He was really into comics. He listened to records. I'm, I'm really into records. We had some of the same band influences, and he was just like all of us. Even after he found out that he was sick, he was still very positive about everything. Yeah. And, you know, it's just um, anyway, I've he was an awesome guy. I've been reading all the heartfelt comments people have been leaving all over his Facebook page. And they're all along the lines of I never met the guy, but he was one of my best friends. Yeah. You know, uh, people all over the CBR forums from Hellboy. He was he was a big part of that community. He was obviously a big part of this community and a, on the community on Mike Mignola's art on Facebook. Everybody comments on how funny he was. I'm really going to miss him. It's just hard to think about how he's just not going to be around in the community anymore. It's just yeah. But and he had a very, like you said, positive outlook about about everything and was very decided on where he stood on everything. And so it's. I feel like we... Um, I'm glad we have this thing that we're doing because we can kind of carry on. I think what he, what he would have wanted was for all of us to keep having these discussions with one another and keep right. making these connections with one another. And so that's, yeah, everything yeah. that you hear about him and read about him is that he's just a great guy and he's great to talk to. And 
all that sort of stuff. Mark Tweedell wrote something on his Mignolaversity update, and I hope it's okay. I thought I would read it. Case was always an active fan in the Hellboy Universe community and always ready to welcome newcomers. When I was first getting into the comics, he was one of those helpful fans that showed me the ropes. Before Mignolaversity's Hellboy Universe reading order, I created a rudimentary publishing order list back in 2009, and Case helped me put it together. Oh, wow. He helped a lot of people. He was always engaged in growing the community around these comics in positive ways. Just check in on those fan communities I mentioned above, and you will see he had an impact on all of us. Case, you will be missed. And Kevin Alford from Mignolaverse.com also had some words. He said, I never talked with Case, but I feel like I knew him a little from his work with the book club. I was just thinking to ask him to write on my site this week. This community, which is amazing, is now diminished and will never fill his seat. Case, I didn't know you, but I really liked you. Farewell. And, uh, yeah, so I guess if there's... uh, Sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, we're all very upset. It's upsetting. Yeah. It's hard to lose somebody. I wrote all this ahead of time. I so. know. <laughs> it's even then, it's hard. I barely even knew this guy. I mean, I know. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't. I, I don't feel like we barely knew him. I feel like he was. He he really was upfront with all of his thoughts and feelings, and and he was so warm and welcoming and very easy to get to know. And we know we knew him for a short time. I know we knew him for a short time, but it's like, it's, you know, it's like Mark said, was that Mark's comment? You know, we're, he's, we're really going to miss him a lot. It's, yeah. He's really, yeah. and Kevin also, you know, mentioned that like, there's a huge void now. And so I think the best thing for us to do is to just continue um, what Case would have continued to do, which is to have these heartfelt conversations with one another. I think that that's something that he would have encouraged. Yeah, and and what I was going to say uh, was that if there's anything to take away from all this, I hope that all of you are able to do something good that you like in your life, do the things that you like, spend time with people who are good, and uh, get away from the TV every once in a while. Life is temporary, and we can lose it at any time. Having a much harder time with this than I thought I would. It's a really, it's hard. It's hard to lose somebody. It's hard to lose a friend, no matter how long. You've but been what them. what I want to say is, if I can get all this out, um, what I want to say is that I I love all you guys, even if you've never commented or liked our page or anything. I love Danielle and Aubrey, and I love our little community, and I loved Case, and I feel bad for his family and for him. So we're gonna do a little moment of silence here, and we're gonna take a shot. It's twelve sixteen p.m. <laughs> on we Sunday live over here. Yeah, Central but, Time, but uh. <laughs> Yeah, we drink to the dead here in the South, and so if you've got a drink handy, non-alcoholic is fine, you can join us. I feel like it's appropriate to mention that John's got his Hellboy shot glass over here. I do. (laughs) All right, here's to you, Case. I hope you can rest well. And if you can't, maybe you can come haunt the podcast sometime. <laughs> Cheers. To Case. To Case. Oh, man, I needed that. Whew. Case would be so disappointed if he knew that I bummed all of you out. No. <laughs> so let's get on with the show. 
Everyone go check out Mignolaverse.com for all your awesome Hellboy, BPRD, and related titles content. This week, they have an interview with Lawrence Campbell, and we haven't got to him yet, but he is an awesome artist. Y'all are going to love him. He's going to blow your mind. So it's really great that they have that interview. And they're also doing a giveaway. Yes, that's right. Free Hellboy merch. They have awesome signed prints of the BPRD characters limited to 250 worldwide. They also have Lawrence Campbell's sketchbook, which is great, and signed copies of BPRD, The Devil You Know, number nine. And where is that, John? It's all at Mignolaverse.com, and all you need to do to get a chance to touch these prizes with your grubby, smelly little hands (laughs) is like Mignolaverse.com on Facebook or Twitter. I've already done that. Share this post on Facebook and or Twitter. You're going to have to unlike it so you can do it again. (laughs) And then we're going to include the hashtag... Hashtag my BPRD and include your favorite BPRD or Hellboy moment, issue, or story. The contest is only open until the end of October. So go ahead and pause the podcast. I give you permission to do that. Go take a shot or whatever, and then also enter this contest and then come back and listen to our listener feedback section. I really want to thank Alex Aronowitz and Yanni Zabo for writing us some awesome recommendations on our Facebook page. Hey, you damn guys. Hey, you damn guys. Thanks. They wrote some really nice comments. All these hosts are really great together. The mix between the academic review and the personal connections makes this wonderful. Thank you, Alex. And Yanni writes, I have been a Hellboy and BPRD fan for over 10 years now and have read just about everything to do with this world more than once. And I'm having a blast rereading it again with the cast of the Hellboy Book Club. The dynamic between the three hosts is fantastic. Feels like sitting with some friends over a drink and chatting. And I love the depths they go to talking about these comics. So thank you so much for that. Um, Kevin Alford also had some feedback on our last episode. He said, ba la 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 laws ah, John Salinas 2018. Yeah. So I guess that'll be my, uh, that'll be my new catchphrase. contribution. <laughs> and I want to also thank Roz Radke. Thank you so much for scratching that itch and drawing us a Dictionnaire Infernal version of Hellboy. That was very cool. Oh, that was so <laughs> fucking sweet. Yes, I shared it all over our social media this week, but go ahead and give Ross some love by following him at Ross Radke on Instagram. That's R-O-S-S-R-A-D-K-E. Or at the R-T Radke on Twitter. And he said... Had to do this when I heard the idea. Wish I spent a little more time making the marks look more like traditional etching, Aww. but it gets the idea across. So yeah, that was really good. No, yeah. it's really good. When I posted our teaser on Monday that we were going to start BPRD on Instagram, Church of Sagan said, oh snap, it just got real. <laughs> and our good pal Letters and Numbers said, yes, Drums of the Dead sparked a whole new obsession for me with the Mignolaverse. Mm, yeah. I also want to thank Andrew Skullgren at AF Mullen on Twitter. He said, I appreciate the Hellboy Book Club stance on Nazis, an emphatic fuck em. For real. And that got a lot yeah. of attention on Twitter. <laughs> and you would think, it, that's kind of sad though to me, because you would think that would be a no brainer. But you know what? It has to be said apparently. Well, All we had the some, time. there yeah. were some additional comments. <laughs> At Rev, Andy Carlson said, well, it's a central pole of the platform. Yeah. <laughs> and at Kilandara said, to be fair, any Hellboy-related group that's anything less than vehemently opposed really missed a major theme of the character. This is true. This is true. And, Very much so. And then at Davik the Gray summed it up nicely with a, uh, a yup. <laughs> <laughs> 
So just like unequivocally though, fuck Nazis. Yeah, fuck Nazis. And I don't act like not we're we're against them. Just to be more clear, we don't like them at all. Okay, some feedback on Hollow Earth. Jerry Turnbull said another good episode. The discussions before getting into the stories proper is becoming a highlight. And I'm glad he feels that way. It's a highlight for me to go through all the listener feedback. Well, that's the thing is that that's that's the whole that's that's the thing. Yeah. You guys, that's the <laughs> yeah. point of the book club is we're going to read the stories and then we're going to talk about them and then you guys talk about them and we talk about what you talk about and then we tell you what we're going to read and then do it all over again, you guys. Great so, summary of the podcast. Thank you for doing that. But oh, it's, yeah. it's essential that we get people to – it's a book club. We're all talking about it together. So that's the whole thing. Sorry, Aubrey. Go ahead. No, I uh, find myself when I listen back to the podcast uh, because I like to um, – I, f- I find myself enjoying those parts too because I'm all like, yeah. oh yeah, that's what we talked about. Because it's yeah. not, it's not yeah. just the three of we're not, you know. We have the, the loudest voices, yeah, but, but yeah, it's, we yeah. want everybody to be. We want to know what you think and what you're talking about, and it helps us to all well, read the stories together on it, a journey of friendship. The end. Well, it's like funny. I'll be listening to the podcast and kind of reading the comments, and I'm all like, "Cool," but then I don't. I don't want to get too far into the comments because I don't want to get spoiled by anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good strategy, Aubrey. Jerry also said, "I wonder if the furnace of Gogoroth was a Tolkien connection. Gogoroth is a region in Mordor where the weapons of the baddies were forged." Right. Now, I can't believe we didn't talk about this because we're always playing that Shadows that, of War game. Yeah, I got, which is I didn't even know what you're talking about. At first, because I call it Shadows of Mordred for yeah. some reason. I'm not sure what, what started that. But no, uh, yeah, Gorgoroth. But that also sounds like Golgoroth. Right. And so there's a whole bunch of, I don't know what Tolk- where Tolkien even got that. Right. So that's yeah. a whole. But it does sound cool. Sounds like a metal band. And Jerry Turnbull also added that Mike Mignola actually did a little pre-production work on the Hobbit movie when Guillermo del Toro was attached to do it. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's that was cool. Were you going to say something? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Is it Tolkien or Tolkien? Tolkien, oh, I yeah. Don't know. <laughs> Just another pronunciation Just another for me thing to butcher. That we don't know I, fe- how to I say. feel like when I watch the special features on the movies, they're going both of them. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Also in New Zealand and yeah. People in New Zealand pronounce things different from people yeah, who are over here where we are at. Too. Yeah, but Christopher Lee isn't from New Zealand. Christopher Lee should be listened to at all times. So how does he say it? Well, he knew Tolkien, right? Tolkien, yeah, Tolkien. Well, if that's how he what did says he it, say? that's how I'm going to say it. I think he it. says Tolkien, but well, then we'll again, I could also be completely wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, Christopher Lee is the man. So no, no, I mean, I'm, I might be misremembering. You might be misremembering. Oh, okay. Well, we'll find yeah. out. If anyone knew Christopher Lee, well, yeah. then let us know let how us he know. said that's it. That's the definitive oh, one. I actually have an audiobook of Tolkien read by Christopher Lee. <sighs> okay. I think he says his name in it. Well, then go back and listen to that entire audiobook. His son says it. That might right. be because that's his name too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Timothy Ryan said another great episode as always. While listening to the Hollow Earth summary, I realized something I'd never thought of. The monk at Argatha was describing an abridged version of the creation myth, with the fall of Thoth at the hands of Hecate and the creation of the Ogdor Jahad and Ogdor Hem. Now Hollow Earth was published about three years before we as readers had the full story laid out in front of us in the island. I wonder what readers made of the timeline without the context of the pre-story in the island and the full secret history of the world. This is a great example of one of my favorite aspects of the Mignolaverse and one of the benefits of reading all the titles. 
Things can be spelled out for us in one story, but only gain significance years later with the context and further development in the other books. Wild. So yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that Hollow Earth came out before the island, but in Hollow Earth they're talking about all the stuff that we discover in the island, so it already had to be I definitely didn't brewing. realize yeah. that. Yeah. I read that comment the other day on um, the Facebook, and um, I started thinking, you know, because we're reading these in, in like chronological order, I guess, and like following the timeline, but if you're reading it as it came out you know you're getting these little bits and pieces right so, like when you get to the island after you've already read hollow earth and you read this you're like oh, whoa that's right. that stuff he was talking about, about. Yeah. yeah it's like director's cut yeah it's kind of like um i don't know it's like we're getting it one way mm-hmm. and other people got it yes. the journey in a different way sure. and it's kind of i don't know it's pretty exciting it <laughs> is know. it is and and to excite you a little bit more I really want to thank Mark Tweedell. Mark Tweedell and I have been working behind the scenes Uh, to plan out all of our episodes. And Mark is such a scholar on this kind of stuff. He is doing a lot of the legwork. To say that him and I are working together, he's really doing all the stuff and showing it to me. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks. So I think as we go into the future, we might do a little bit more bouncing back between titles and this and that. Because Mark really has a good eye for that. He's helping me uh, organize all that out. That's super cool. Thanks, Mark. So that's very exciting. Thank you. Ross Radke again commented. He said... I had forgotten just how strong the character dynamics are in this early version for the BPRD comic. Not sure which of the writers to credit for that, but it laid such a strong foundation for John Arcudi to build on. So John Arcudi is going to come on as writer in some of the later BPRD, and so he really does an awesome job, and uh, yeah, it'll be exciting to get to that. Kevin Alfred said, I think the competition Kate was referring to was outlet government agencies. Uh, You see her climbing the ranks of the BPRD over time, so she was probably thinking about her job. Right, right, right. Where she says about the competition. Sure. Oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Kevin Alford also said about the Abe-Liz relationship, I don't know if you've thought of this, but Abe is water, always changing. Liz is fire, chaotic and fast. Hellboy is earth, stable and unbreakable, and Johan is air, living above normal folk while moving and changing with the situation, but unable to touch and hold. It makes sense that opposites would attract. I have thought about that, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't know if that was like a super dumb or insignificant observation but i'm glad that other people are thinking about that too because that's yeah the the earth fire water air thing is a very significant thing in you guessed it paganism oh yeah and i think also roger could maybe be earth too because he's like built out of like clay and manure for sure and well and hellboy is like he's like oh like fireproof and he's he's kind of can he's got the stone hand he's a very he's a very like grounded kind of dude and can be a lot, uh, many things to many people. He's he's touched Abe in this way. He's touched Liz in this way. He's touched Roger in this way. He's you know what I mean. So it's a very, um, it's a he's kind of brings them all together in the fifth element, which we all know is love. <laughs> the end. The end. Oh, uh, when I actually read that comment, I I thought about uh, Kathy and I because she's a fire sign and I'm a water sign. And you're a water sign. Oh, and we've okay. actually talked about that, like you know, before. And it kind of, yeah. and then it also other part of our discussion we were talking about uh, Liz and Abe being more together. I don't know, so I got all like sappy and started to yeah. Kathy. <laughs> That's very sweet. And also made me think of that Paula Abdul song, Opposites Attract. Opposite, you know, yeah. With the, MC Cool Cat. Yeah, yeah, MC Cool Cat with the he was a cartoon, right? Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah. I did a metal cover version of that at karaoke. 
As oh, in like, did you really? Actually, as in like, the song was playing normally, but I sang it like a metal singer. That's I amazing. I have seen people do that, and it's amazing. A guy did a Madonna song like yeah. that, and I actually really liked it. It was good. I was okay. I was drunk. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> well, that's how you have to do it. Jen Niklas, uh, he said, first, happy belated birthday, John. So thank you, everybody, who gave me birthday wishes. That was really nice. The Libra over here. And um, uh, I was showing off the Duncan sketchbook that Danielle got me. And yeah. he, he wrote an amazing sketch on the inside. Duncan Fregredo is super nice, by the way. He's a super nice dude. I actually, <laughs> when I ordered the sketchbook, I left a little, there's a room for notes when you're asking him for a sketchbook. And I was just like, hey, this is for John's birthday. He's a super cool dude. Just for whatever reason. I was like, I don't even know why I'm putting this here. He wrote for John. It was super nice sketch that he put in there. Super nice guy. Just very sweet. And I thought that was really generous with his time. I thought that was very sweet. Yeah, it was a really badass very sketch. Thoughtful it was. And I posted it online. And he even commented on it on Twitter. And what he said, enjoy. Time. So Aww. I thought that was really nice. And I also want to thank Drew Campbell because he posted the Graffiti Designs link. That, you know, Graffiti Designs was doing all the Hellboy stuff in the 90s. Right. And they you can still buy stuff from their store. Yeah. They still have all the stuff from the 90s. Like, so They have a warehouse of 90s stuff? I guess, yeah. It's pretty oh, cool. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I got some birthday money and I bought like about every single thing on there. I bought the action figure. They have an old school shirt. I bought that. They had a magnet set. I bought that and a little pin. I have to say that shirt is... Awesome. It's a really cool shirt. I yeah. want one now. It's good. I like it. Um, and Jen Nikla said, as for BPRD, I have to be honest, I never got as much as with Hellboy. I can't lay my finger on why. Maybe it's more normal in a way than Hellboy. Yes, there are monsters, but they act more like real animals than the whimsical creatures Hellboy encounters. Maybe I found some characterization strange, or maybe because, well... Does it matter what they do? It is clear that Hellboy will put an end to it all, so hmm. why getting invested? Anyway, there's still some real good gems to be found and without this series, and maybe I wouldn't have read some of the very, very good spinoffs Mike and co. have presented over the years. And it also brought some fresh ideas through other writers on board. So yeah, it might not be my favorite, but it's still good, and I'm very thankful for its existence. Meaning Frankenstein Underground, Kashi the Deathless, and then he put, ha, try that, John. I think it's Kashi. I think that's how you say it, but yeah, I, I could be wrong it, about it. I don't, I don't know. And all the lobster books. And he says, all the lobster. So I'm really excited to get to those. It's also nice to see uh, a more social side of HB. Yeah, he's grumpy, old grumpy grump, but he has the charisma and personality to make you like him. He's got a big heart, is good with kids, and works hard. Ladies and gentlemen, get him, as long as he is single. <laughs> I also thought that a romance between Abe and Liz would make more sense. Oh well, can't wait for the next episode. Keep up the good work. I posted on our social media some of the artwork from Stanislav Zuskowski, who... Uh, I, whose name I just butchered, and I love also how you just breezed right through it though. And You're like, who, I'm not uh, even gonna. And uh, also, who Mike Mignola based a lot of the looks of the Hyperborean relics and peoples on. And Kevin Alford said, "That is so cool. One of the statues even kind of looks like Hellboy. Does Mike Mignola just know every mythology from birth or something?" <laughs> now he has a lot of books, I think. Yeah. In his studio. I want to say. I think he's just, I think that's something that he's just been interested in. Well, it's, yeah, as it's a fascinating. Hobbyist, yeah. Absolutely. Ryan Rollinson said, who couldn't be saved with a ham sandwich? <laughs> right. And, oh, so this is really interesting. So I posted, you know, I posted the alien that got, uh, the alien from Conquer Worm and mm -hmm. uh, 
was the other one? Uh, Buster Oakley. Oh, Seed of Destruction. Yeah, but he he was in the background of Buster Oakley in one right, of those right, pods. Right. Yeah. And then Jerry said, are they really aliens? Right, right, right. And so Nathaniel Green kind of piggybacked on that, and he responded to Jerry's, are there really aliens? And he posted a reference to Hollow Earth, which is the story that we read last week. One of the little word bubbles says, followers of the right-hand past somehow moved beyond this world. Oh, of course. So uh. the first race of man was made up of these watchers that came to Earth, oh, and then they got man, split into the, the right-hand. Because they're watching. That makes super sense. Yeah. And it's super interesting super observation. Good. Love thank that. Thank you, Nathaniel, for that. And Beautiful. thank you, Jerry, for uh, pointing him in that direction. Um, Church of Sagan on Instagram said, every time my partner has me picked between left and right, I don't even look. I immediately say left. Left hand path every time. <laughs> it's been that way ever since I was a kid listening to Entombed. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Well, that like I was on the last episode that where I was talking about like, you know, that little asterisk where I was like, by the way, left hand path gets a lot of bad rap. Yeah. Like much the same that witches do and people that walk the left hand path are cool with me kind of a deal and right. so that might be a little i don't know throw back to that i posted the hellboy ryan sook comparison where they um the scene where hellboy quits the comparison between Mignola drawing it and sook drawing it yeah it was good moon knight said on instagram i love guy davis but i almost wish sook had stayed on bprd his art is so crisp and it really made it feel more in line with the rest of the Mignola verse. i really liked his art yeah the killer rabbit said seems a two Mignola on this one but yeah i dig his work so people kind of go on both sides you know and then yeah. mario lopez illustration said Mignola wins so i guess he <laughs> he liked to he preferred Mignola's to sook some feedback on Drums of the Dead. Jan Nikla said, and to write stories for Abe has to be the hardest writing job because how often can you write water in it to give him a reason for using his skills? He also lacks HB's laid back demeanor, so he comes more around as more socially awkward, which doesn't make you feel at ease as you would with Hellboy. Well, at least he's the smart one, and maybe it's fitting too since his stories are way darker than those of Big Red. I have to say something to that. This is the whole Hellboy book club, I guess, is that I were saying stuff and then people say stuff and I'm going to say stuff about the stuff they said. <laughs> yes. um, I don't know if Abe is necessarily socially awkward. I just think that he is a reserved guy. Right. He's just kind of a... Like, Hellboy's going to say whatever he's thinking, which is great. But I think I really feel like Abe is just a very I kind of work with a guy who's like that. He just says what he means and he means what he says. He doesn't say anything more than that's necessary. And this is what we're doing. And we're getting the job done. And it's very, you know, I just think it's his personality is to be a little bit more reserved. Maybe. I don't know if I'm reading too much into right. a comic yeah. book character or not. But I I, I kind of get more because I know I know a lot of people like that. And I don't think that they're awkward. I just think that it's um, just a way that they are handling things. That's just a certain he's in work mode. He's right. kind of, you know, goal oriented, I, I would say. And he doesn't really say more than necessary, which is a valid way to live your life. I feel I don't know. Yeah, that's that, that's a good thought on that. I and feel like Roger is the more awkward but it's adorable and you love it right. like it's not awkward in a bad cringy way it's awkward in a oh what a cute little sweet baby you just want to take him and be like it's gonna be okay guy but yeah yeah um, when i read that comment i was like oh that kind of makes me think of aquaman and namer the submariner right, right, right. <laughs> oh yeah yeah well, all how of our... are they going to be near water yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well and all of our team members have their own thing that they 
do, but I feel like the writers do a good job of saying there's a way to use that here and they get more and more creative with it, which is cool. And they all are awkward in some way, but they come together and and it it all sort of zeroes out in the end. So they all have their own awkward. Liz is kind of awkward in a lot of ways. I think Johan feels awkward, but ends up being very dashing to other people. So I think it's all about their own perception of themselves and then how they're perceived by others and then how we perceive all of that together, which is, I guess if you're a writer, you have to think about stuff like that. I don't, right. you know what I mean? I, I, I wouldn't know how to go about constructing a character. I think that that takes a lot of skills. So I, I do appreciate the nuances, whatever they may be and however they may be interpreted. And I think that they're all very, it's good stuff. Yeah. Tom Hardman said, maybe it's just me, but Abe looks a little off in Drums of the Dead. These close-ups make him look like a rubber mass 1970s Doctor Who monster. And so we read that one last week. And when we talked about it, I was actually going to say this a little bit. The artist does make him look a little more like a monster. Well, like, like uh, I think in a lot of the other art, we see Abe as almost like, just like a fish humanoid. Yeah. But this guy, I think, uh, he, and I, God, I forgot his name. What, what's his name, Aubrey? The artist? Yeah. Uh, it is he does look like a creature from the black lagoon kind of a guy yeah he kind of does i also um, feel like the inks are a little muddy Derek thompson Derek thompson yeah i think Derek thompson draws him a little bit more like a monster yeah like a like you like you said creature from the black lagoon or whatever um yeah i'd say it's the lips that are throwing me off (laughs) right the way he draws his lips it's just like it just feels weird. For me, it's the eyes, I think. Right. Well, yeah. and there's also, he adds a lot of details. Well, the lips, like you said, they're oh, fish and lips then the and nose. then the scales. And then there's a lot of... And his nose looks a little... It's just a different take. Yeah, it's, it's just, just a, different a different take, take on, on him. And I think that that's, everyone's got their own style kind of a deal. All right. So we're going to go ahead and move along with our book club for this week. We're going to start off with The Soul of Venice. This, is, uh, this information is from the Hellboy Wiki which is a great resource that I look at when I'm writing up my show notes. Following Hollow Earth, it was unclear what direction the BPRD comics would take. Four one-shot stories were published every month from May to November 2003, The Soul of Venice, Dark Waters, Night Train, and There's Something Under My Bed. The Soul of Venice was published in May 2003. So all these stories that we're reading today are part of these one-shots that all came out during this time. For The Soul of Venice, story by Miles Gunter... Michael Avon Oming with Mike Mignola, art by Oming, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Ken Bruzenek. I gotta say something before we start. Go I ahead. love Oming. I love his art. It's yeah. super great. Some people, I guess, are like, oh, it's too stylized, but I, I have always digged it, and I really, I've always dug it. I, I dig it, is, is what I'm trying to say. I really like it. Oming is great. I was shocked to see, I was like, I can't, I didn't know, how did I never know that he worked on BPRD, I never knew that. And so I am i can't believe I missed that. Well, and I think also in, um, God, I think it was Conqueror Worm, there was a Dr. Omin. Yeah. And, and we were wondering and if I that was, was like, a oh, reference to Michael Avon Omin. Yeah. He's such a great artist. And so I, I was actually, I felt bad that I didn't know that he had something to do with this. Oh, Closina, goddess of this place, look on thy servant with a smiling face. Often cohesive, let my offering flow, not rudely swift nor obstinately slow. And we see the statue of Closina. Super beautiful. In Roman mythology, Closina was the goddess who presided over the Cloaca Maxima, 
greatest drain, the main trunk of the system of sewers in Rome. She was originally derived from the Etruscan mythology. A small shrine of Venus Cloacina was situated before the Basilica Amina on the Roman Forum and directly above the Cloaca Maxima. Some Roman coins had images of Cloacina and her shrine on them. Nice. I just like how the Romans have a god for everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a really important deal because, like, oh yeah, no, I want my a, sewers clean. Well, no, yeah, I mean, like, having that kind of infrastructure is was like a huge. Oh yeah, I mean, deal, it, and it's it, like you know, it really kind of did, you know, revolutionary. And then, of course, you know, they came in and destroyed it all for the Dark Ages. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, which technically wasn't an age. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for all of our but it does make sense that yeah, it does make sense that she would be. A thing like that's you you definitely want a goddess for that for sure oh yeah i just lo- gotta love those romans the clean, yeah the uh, the cleanliness of the city or whatever like it that you know you get rid of disease and she kind of is yeah a guardian of life in a way We see the bprd team in a helicopter and abe explains that for the last 36 hours something has been going on in venice and the pipes are exploding not only that but there are also increased reports of domestic disturbances it's a mess. And Liz is kind of holding her nose over all this horrible smell. I and love her expression. Yeah. It's so you immediately know. Like, I, I almost feel like I can smell something bad when I look at that. Yeah. That that, that panel. Uh, you know, Oming is so... Here I am already starting on this. His, his expressions are, are great. I love his, they are. I love it. I love how Liz says, hey, we're not plumbers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? Why are they there, right? She's not thrilled to be there. You can just tell by her expression that that is just, oh, it's disgusting. And we see the city. It looks pretty gross. Uh, Omin does a good job. There's, like, sludge coming out of all the windows and stuff like that. Just his shapes, the, like, the the movement of the – it's just a, such a very specific style, and it's really – I just love it. I'm sorry. I'll stop. That's <laughs> okay. okay. You're all good. It, it is – it's gross. <laughs> it just makes me think it of all the poop. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. He does a great job with this. Abe isn't happy to be there either. He's been there before and couldn't come out of his tank until a month after he'd been in that polluted water. Roger mentions that he's brought his tub and Johan looks for the source of the mess. Johan kind of releases his ectoplasm but falls back in shock as the water rises out at him. I gotta say, I like this uh, these two panels yeah, side by side with say. Abe, one in the clean water and one in the dirty water. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'll admit, I stared at those for a while, trying to, I don't know, going a little bit cross-eyed looking at both of them. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> no. Yeah. Totally. And I, I, I love Roger is always very observant of everything around him. He's he looks at the world with a fresh pair of eyes yeah. that you don't know. Like we take things for granted in just our normal daily interactions, but he. There's nothing past him. You know, it's almost childlike, but he's, it's just, it's good stuff. I love the way that um, they're writing all these characters. I've, I've said it before, but I really love an ensemble cast, and these, these four characters are just the best. It's awesome. Johan shouts, Almighty, as the water comes out after him. Johan says that the water itself is screaming in pain. That's bad. Roger says, is that Roger, right? Yeah. He's like, that's bad. This really lends itself to, it could be, this could be an animation. I mean, this could be, could be yeah, watching an animation. it does. Liz, really Liz's expression it. right here looks like a very Absolutely. animated frame. Yeah. So when I looked up what uh, um, 
Johan said in German. I got holy Christ. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right. Well, that I, I got guess Almighty. Almighty so could be a reference they, to they're I both guess, God like Almighty. The same thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I was reading is like I guess technically it translates to Almighty, but you would say it like Holy Christ. Ah, yeah. okay. Thank you for Although that, I Aubrey. Do, I do hear people say God Almighty when they're right or whatever. Like my. <laughs> I think I've probably heard my grandfather say that a couple times. (laughs) (laughs) Johan leads the team, and they walk past a statue of Cloacina. Roger stops to look at her. She's beautiful, he says, and he just kind of stares into her face. So sweet. What a sweetie pie. Well, and that's also like he he was inanimate at one point. Yeah, you're right. He kind of has a different relationship with these like statues like that's or, a god yeah. like to him well they're saying she's a goddess right. so he's looking at her like oh she's beautiful she's a beautiful goddess like it's very amazing i love this writing i like how on the statues you know as it zooms in you see more detail in the eyes oh yeah yes. that's true and of course the first thing i thought of was uh don't blink yeah oh yeah <laughs> it makes me want to try my hand at drawing statues Abe explains everything that I already did about Cloacina and how she maintains the canals. And Liz says it sounds like she's fallen down on the job. And Johan leads the team into the house. So snarky. And I love how Johan is kind of leading here. You know what I mean? He's kind of, he can find the source of it. And so they're all just kind of following him. He gets to take the lead. He's a very level-headed guy. Yeah. So that's, that makes sense that he would take that role. Johan is researching here on a phone or something. I was wondering if that's like a... Like a like a iPhone or something. I guess. Wait, when did these come out? That's what I would do. Two thousand three. No, see, the iPhone wasn't out until two thousand seven. It's probably more of a tricorder. Mm. Ah. <laughs> or, or it might just be like a. At this point, it could be some sort of a gadget that they use for in the field research. Well, he's looking at the bureau files, so right, I guess right. maybe it just has they that have in files there. Files in there, sure. And in the house that they're in, Johan explains that the house belonged to Romulus Diovani. The rich son who spent his life partying and turned his family's house into a brothel renowned for its abandon. According to Abe, he makes Marquis de Sade look like a Quaker. And Marquis de Sade, in case you didn't know, a French French nobleman, (laughs) revolutionary politician, philosopher and writer, famous for his libertine sexuality. Saad is best known for depicting sexual fantasies with an emphasis on violence, suffering, criminality and blasphemy against Christianity. He wrote a bunch of fucked up shit. Yeah, he gained notoriety for putting these fantasies into practice with both consenting and non-consenting peoples. That's the part that I don't like. The words sadism and sadist are derived from his name. They definitely are, and if you've ever seen the thing with Jeffrey Rush or whatever. Uh, Quills. Quills, there it is. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I've seen that. Fucked up. I and, uh, It's fucked up. Yeah. And we, we get kind of some flashbacks here. Um, we get some boobs. Some boob shots. Well, we most importantly, we get nipples, which is great. Yeah. I think that that is fine and good. Anyway. And oh, it also looks like a little male hair on the crotch there. There it is. Hey, <laughs> get some wieners. Oh, good job. They snuck in that. Snuck it they in there. They made there. that shadow look more it like It wouldn't hair. be until later when Batman revolutionized the, <laughs> the comic book wiener. Uh, but any- that didn't last very long. Uh, no, it sure didn't. Anyway, this sadist attracted the attention of a vampire. And when Giovanni was refused his request for immortality from the vampire, Giovanni bound the vampire and tortured him. But the vampire resisted, so Giovanni killed the vampire and drank his blood, becoming a bloodthirsty madman, eventually burned at the stake in 1299 by the Knights Templar. 
and Johan mentions that this happened in the Piazza San Marco. And so uh, in the Piazza San Marco, there are these columns, and they were erected in 1268, and I did read that public executions took place between the columns. So there's your historical fiction right there. Well, I also like the way that um, Oming has these flashbacks going on of this fucked up shit happening. And um, Abe and Johan are right here in the foreground talking about it. So it's... Oh, yeah, I do like that. It's such a good transition. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. I just want to go back to the awesomeness of Johan's gadget. You know, he's yeah. basically got a little device that's connected to the internet that's the future in 2003. And then 2007, yeah. the iPhone comes out. To be connected to all that information yeah. just right there. Yeah. Well, and art kind of sometimes ends up predicting technology occasionally. Like, authors will pre- – like, I think Michael Crichton did a, did that quite a bit. He would, like, do a lot of research oh, yeah. and be like, oh, I'm going to make something fantastical. I'll, I'll smoosh all this research together and then, like – it happens 20 years later, right. and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Also, th- there's definitely a wiener here. So, Oming is equal equality of nudity across oh, the board. Yeah. You know, you can't say that he's just drawn boobies. <clears throat> He'll draw wieners. He's got to sneak him in, though, probably to get past, like, yeah. sensors and shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As the team walk through the house, they walk past a painting of a little creepy girl. <laughs> And Abe says that it was said that Giovanni's ghost haunts the house, and anyone who lives here has gone insane. Johan Johan detects a a disturbance behind a wall. It's here. And the picture of the little girl bursts out. It comes alive, and it leaps out at Johan. And I like how Roger just punches it. Like, he just (laughs) just punches it. He just breaks it. it. (laughs) But as he smashes it, he reveals a room behind the wall. And this room is filled with relics and torture devices and a coffin. Love it. This is the epicenter of evil, Johan says. It's nearly sundown, Abe says, looking at his watch. Let's make this quick. And he takes out the stake and stabs the vampire in the coffin. And it's this like big buildup, but then there's like no real reaction. And I love how Omin paces it. Yeah, Yeah. it's great pacing. And he he goes, uh, that was easy. They usually go out kicking and screaming. So you get sort of this, for me, I got sort of a a hint of, I got all these pretend flashbacks in my head of him having adventures with Hellboy and Liz and coming across vampires together and being like, so he's the old hat. He knows, oh, well, vampires usually do this. Like it's very, it's a very, uh, you get a, you get a a grumpy old man bit there from Abe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good little detail. And Johan just comments the evil, and then Abe realizes that his eyes are that bleeding. That is the creepiest, yeah. like you said, oh, Oming's pacing. Yeah. Spot on. Just like, you know, he goes, where he, Johan goes the evil, and then you see Abe's hands in his head. Yeah. Right. He it's ooh, creepy. It's very <laughs> creepy because there's no dialogue. It's just one beat, and then my eyes are bleeding. It's fucked up. I dig it. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, then the vampire does rise, and he screams out. He's surrounded by bats, and he pulls the stake out of his chest. Welcome to my house. And they all start shooting at him, you know. Liz incinerates all the bats. Well, I don't know if they're actual bats. They're, oh, right. I don't think she's actually burning bats. I think she's burning, like, what appear to be bats. It's, mm. like, maybe evil magic that takes the shape of a bat. Because then on the next page, you see, like, it's a demon. Right. This one bat comes out, and... She would burn bats. It has, like, this green smoke coming out of its yeah, mouth. for sure. 
foolish creatures it yells and the team succumbs to the smoke so they all kind of pass out from this stuff that it's emanating from its mouth and Diavani says there is no escape we get an omen rune. Yeah. We get like a little omen version of a rune. That's really nice. It's good mm-hmm. stuff. The sigil, the sigil work here is is good, and it's an actual sigil. Yeah. And I was like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I've seen that before. Let me go to my bookshelf. As soon, because so as soon as I saw this page, I leapt up and went to my bookshelf and went to all my different sigil stuff and was looking. I was like, hmm. And John was like, did you? Did you turn the page yet? Because it's on the... I was like, oh, he just says it right there. Yeah, like, <laughs> it, it, it explains what that rune is. I couldn't... I was like, oh, I can't remember it exactly. I know I've seen it before, and John was like, he just he's going to tell you. It's fine. But <laughs> yeah, before we get there, Roger awakes to Diavani chanting. He invokes a spirit to appear. Be friendly and obey, for I stir thee up in the name of the Tetragrammaton. For 600 years, I labored to capture the spirit of Venice, and now, after all these ages, Cloacina is mine. And we see a jar with a light coming from inside. It's weird that he would be trying to invoke him in the name of the Tetragrammaton, because that's the four-letter name of God in, I think, that's the Hebrew. Hmm. Like, it's you know Yahweh or Yahweh, however you want to pronounce that. You're not supposed right. to be able to pronounce it. It's like the unspeakable name of God or whatever. But that's an interesting... It's it's interesting. I wonder where he got all this stuff. Yeah, fascinated with how they that is that is a good point. Wrote all this. Why he would use that name? But Giovanni offers uh, to the spirit in return for great powers to lead thirty legions in victory against the world of man. And the spirit rises, and it's Shax, a giant bird demon. Do you want to talk about Super this? Super cool do you design. Want me to talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the only thing I really have. Uh, to add to the conversation about Shax is that uh, Oming's design looks super fucking cool. It's impeccable. I love it. I guess that's all I really have to say okay. about that. I mean, honestly. So Shax is I like the... how it looks like he has kind of like a beard. <laughs> oh, yeah. So cool. You're right. He has like a crest or what is that called? On the yeah, it's yeah. a crest. Yeah, it's a crest. Well, the crest is on the head. I guess the, I guess on the chest it would be like a... um, um. I'll never think of the name of the thing, but that does have a specific name. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I just like how he, the way he drew it. It just looks like, yeah, you know, he's like. The breast feathers here. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. The 44th spirit is Shax or Shaz or Shaz. He's a marquee of yeah. hell. He's a great marquee. He appeared in the form of a stock dove, speaking with a voice hoarse but yet subtle. And he governed 30 legions of spirits. And that little sigil that we saw Omin draw is his seal. And so when Diovanni says, Diovanni offers the spirit in return for great powers to lead 30 legions, he's referring yeah. to the 30 legions that Shax, uh, that Shax has access to. So th- there's some good little research going in there. And you can there. look up, there's all, there's, there's in just infinity amount of seals out there that you can yeah. and do and invoke and all this stuff, sort of stuff. But like his interpretation of Shax is... Really super cool because when I, from from the description that you gave us, I would have just kind of pictured just like a little dove with a little raspy voice. Oh yeah, <laughs> and like this guy is super creepy, and I, I just I really like it a lot. It's a really good design. But Shax isn't too impressed with Diovanni's offering. No. He says he does not receive trinkets, and he calls Diovanni an insect eater of carrion ghoul. And uh, ghoul made me think of the ghoul from the story that we read where that guy was eating dead bodies, you know, and Giovanni Giovanni tortured the vampire until he was dead and then ate it and then drank his blood. And And Giovanni starts crying blood. I noticed that little detail. You notice that? 
and Roger emerges with a spear and he's kind of looking at the jar. And then the statue, and then it's he's he really believes this goddess is he is like totally, completely smitten and dedicated to her. And he's like, you know, just like a kid, let her go. You know, I'm he's gonna do whatever he can to get her to safety. It's amazing. Right. So Roger jumps out, he yells and he smashes the jar, and Giovanni is reduced to bones. And one of his bones kind of slides across the floor and it breaks that seal. Love that. Yeah. Oh, when I saw that seal break, I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah, love it. And so Shax comes over to Roger and he says that Roger has served him well. But where is your companion? Roger looks back at the team, the BPRD. Not those poor things, Shax says. You know of whom I speak. Hellboy, Roger asks. Cute. I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> when you do, pass along a greens for me, Shax says. Okay, Roger responds. So cute. <laughs> Love him. He's so cute. I just, like, I just like the way Shaq's like, hey, so where's Hellboy? Uh, yeah, they all know who he is. I like that. They, they all, they say, all know who he is. Say hi for him. Say, say hi for me. <laughs> Tell him I said hi. I love um, Shaq's here in this big, um, and I love the way that Oming, this is this is a small thing, but the way that he, I don't even know the word for it, arranges his panels, mm. the, the phraseology the page in layout. his panel. Yeah, it's very, it lends itself well to this because Shaq's is this tall, imposing figure. He's very tall and thin, and it's a very, you know, the, the everything works together in this, the, the coloring and the the word bubbles the speech yeah. balloons or whatever they um we've, we've talked about that before like the those specific designs and this this whole thing really works together to create a big mood here and um roger is such a tiny little innocent sweet baby that he's like um okay yeah, yeah. sure and i like how Shax is just like all right later okay bye like he doesn't do anything mean like you know we no, would think of yeah. a demon to be like and now i'm going to destroy all of venice and no, this city's going to yeah. be mine and this and that that's but the thing is like demons have shit to do but like Shax, he was like okay you bothered me i don't like you yeah. i'm going to reduce you to bones and then i'm just going to peace out and go yeah. back to my go back to hell this or is, whatever i don't have time for this <laughs> well I say I, I kind of looked looked the guy up on the Wikipedia, and it didn't even have a, his own Wikipedia page. It was just listed, and so he was like way down right. on the totem pole of power. <laughs> so he's probably got to get back to his job, <laughs> otherwise some, his boss is gonna be like, "Where yeah. the fuck you been?" He's well, gonna he's leave those mar- thirty legions. He's or a marquis, so he's like, you know, he's got he's got shit he's doing. He's in charge yeah. of some peeps. He's got people in charge of him. You know, it's like you said, he's like middle management, maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly what I was thinking. He's just like, I ain't got time for your bullshit. But it's not, it's, <laughs> we get into this a lot. We get into this a lot on the podcast and these various discussions and whatever that evil is not necessarily quote unquote evil and good is not necessarily quote unquote good. And there's a lot of gray area. And so it's like, maybe he's just a fucking guy. You know what I mean? Maybe he's just a guy that's like, yeah. he's got these, that's just the way it's always been. Where he's got these powers and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't care about this jar. Hey, oh, you know, Hellboy, right? Say hi for me. Okay, bye. I got shit. I've got shit to do. I gotta like, get out of here. He's like, I gotta go file my TPS reports. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Although, um, maybe that's kind of why they're all mad. They're all in stuck in middle management, yeah. and sure. then they're oh, like, yeah. they just snap and they're like, Fuck, sure. Now I'm gonna kill. It's not their fault they have all these crazy oh, powers. You know? Somebody asked me to work a Saturday again. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so as Shax disappears, Johan says, who's that? And the team kind of see this light and they see this glowing woman and she kind of walks across the room and she looks at Roger and Roger says, Cloacina. Because she knows that he has been, ever since he first heard of her, right. has been the staunch believer. And so now we cut to Venice and it looks all beautiful now. It's restored and the team drinks wine. I like these little scenes where they yeah. just get to hang out. And yeah. even Johan, he says he finds the essence most pleasing. Cute. And Johan asks, how do they write up these reports on this sort of thing? Demons, goddesses, new guys, Liz says. You'll get used to it. It's a very scully Abe moment. Respond. Yeah. I feel like this is a very scully moment for her. She's like, yeah, well, you'll get, you'll, you'll get used to it. And so the team are there. They're enjoying their wine. Abe's typing up the report. And then we cut over. And we see Roger, and he's sitting there with a bottle, two glasses of wine, and he's just sitting next to Cloacina. Look how cute and precious. And she's kind of leaned over yeah. a little bit. Oh, man. I was like, oh. This panel is just so sweet. Oh, yeah, and I, and I like how Roger's just kind of sitting there. Like, yes. you know, he... I don't know. There's there's something about Roger's expression here that just is really touching to me. Yes, you know, that he's, he's just, seen. Yeah. He has seen... His beliefs come to life, and he has seen he he's really seen something he can't go back right like he's hasn't seen much in his short existence, and what he has seen has really affected him, and it's just such a sweet touching like you said his expression these expressions that oming draws are just they really are touching and it's just a scene with a little like you said the little two wine glasses, and it's just yeah, it's I a like very that. touching you can almost feel the nice cool breeze and you can almost he's really deep in thought it's just a very touching panel i say i think he looks he looks a little smitten with her yeah <laughs> and now we're going to talk about dark waters this story is by brian augustin art by guy davis this is our first guy, guy davis. davis colors by dave stewart and letters by michelle madsen I like this art. It's super different from the artists that we were just it really at, is, yeah. But I still like it. It's really good. And we open up on the small town of Shiloh, Massachusetts. This is what I wanted. And I, I expressed this. I was like, I really hope BPRD is this ensemble X Files kind of a thing and it it really is. Right. I love this. It this could be an episode of something. You know, it's not like I'm I don't even feel like I'm Reading a comic book, I, I feel like I'm watching an episode of a show that I like. And we're in Massachusetts, so what does that mean, Danielle? Oh, man, you know what that means? <laughs> it means uh, a lot of people being murdered for being quote-unquote witches. Yeah. Damn Puritans. Even if they were <laughs> witches, don't murder them. The end. How about just don't murder? Right. Yeah, how about that? Let uh, people be. And so a man in a grocery store Wait. watch oh, sorry, go ahead. What does the Scrod Capital mean? Okay. Scrod Capital Scrod of New England. Scrod is a fish. Oh, good job. I didn't even look at that little detail. That is so weird. Yeah. Um, a man in a grocery shop watches a water truck drain a pond, and we see on a newspaper, if you zoom in really close, it says Wicklow Pond to be drained. He does look like your local town grocer, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. I mean, really. And no. a bunch of people are watching, standing around um, while this is happening. A mayor and a cop talk. 
The cop, Annie, says everything's going fine, and the mayor says this is part of his beautification campaign to clean up the pond. Now, is she the sheriff, though? Or I think that she's the constable. She's the constable. They're, they're okay. going to explain some of that right, later. Right, right, okay. Um, but Are some they just draining the, the pond into the sewer? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Or into like, that truck. Wouldn't it? I well, it then look, it goes the from the truck, truck going into... out into the train. Oh, right. Yeah. It yeah. seems like, wouldn't you truck it away? Yeah. yeah. I just feel like when it would go back to the it lowest point. It would go back into the If you're the next pond. to the pond. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. We're going to ignore that probably. And some of the citizens think that this is a bad idea, that it's a part of the history. And the mayor says... Who knows what gems we'll find underneath the dirt? Well, he also says the town needs something other than mosquitoes the size of your fist. Right. Which is like, <laughs> this is a health hazard. This pond is clearly right. not, this is not good. We actually do need to get rid of this. I don't know what kind of townspeople would be like, yeah, please don't get rid of the cesspool in the middle of the town. <laughs> I think that that would be something that they would immediately be like, can we finally get rid of this fucking crap hole i like the way that he draws him he really does look like a politician he really yeah. does he, he looks really like does. a mayor his his facial expressions and so what gems do they find underneath the pond horrible they find these three bound women uh, in chains at the bottom of the pond on the next page we see the constable who we learn is constable rackham she meets with abe sapien and roger They've called the BPRD to investigate three perfectly preserved 300-year-old corpses. Back okay. when it's fine to murder women for fun. You're murdering women for fun 300 years ago. All right. Sounds, yes. Sounds good. And Rackham says that they smell like roses. Abe comments that sometimes you get that with divine supernatural occurrences. So here he's referring to the odor of sanctity. Yeah. According to the Catholic Church... It's a specific scent often compared to flowers that emanates from the bodies of saints, especially the wounds of stigmata. This is actually something I have heard of before. So when he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I wonder how it made me start kind of daydreaming about what kind of things has he run into before where he's seen this or smelled this, I guess. Yeah, and I was trying to get a sense of who this guy was. His name is Hal. I thought he was the mortician, but he also seems like he's a doctor, too. I think in small towns, there's a lot of that. Okay, because he like knows Dual all this roles, research, yeah. and he's done all these experiments, but he's also in the in the morgue. Well, Scully did a lot of... Um, oh, yeah. She did yeah. a lot of, uh, what's it called? Um, autopsies. Autopsies, and she's a doctor, so that's a whole thing. You know, you perform dual roles when you're a doctor. You can do like pretty much fucking anything. You went to medical school for 12 years or something. Well, I thought it was more of a coroner and less of a mortician. Right, right, right. Ah, okay. Uh, the coroner would be the one who'd do all the autopsies Again, and stuff. Again, it would probably all be one and the same in a town this small. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have that many people coming in and out of the mortuary. I don't know. Who knows? Well, in either case, the doctor says that their teeth and clothes test positive for uh, being several hundred years old. And one of the women had old decomposing material under her fingernails. And Roger comments that they don't even look dead. Abe asks about witch persecution. And Rackham says that she didn't think their town was part of that, but reveals to the agents that they found artifacts with the bodies. And these artifacts are torture devices associated with witch trials. <laughs> oh, and I, I like this little scene. Roger comments that she's the chief. Yeah. He's like, so you're the chief? Yeah. Because they walk into her office and it says uh, yeah. chief constable. So, I, like, Roger maybe not be used to that either. Like, having a, um, a woman as the head law enforcement or, you know what I mean? 
Is that what he's commenting on, or? I guess I don't. I just thought he just saw that word for the first time. So oh. Yeah, maybe he's working out, like, so you're the chief. Like, he's trying to figure out where that puts her, like, where she fits in the uh, whole. Okay. I don't even know if she. he's necessarily commenting on her gender. I think it's more of, like, oh, so you're, so I should treat you like this. You're the chief. You're the boss. Right. That means I treat you this way. Good point. I don't know, yeah. like, if that's, yeah. I mean, he might be used to, like, um the boss being in more like a suit whereas like she's still wearing like the uniform of the oh, same she kind of has oh, a cop uniform yeah, on yeah you're right you're right maybe that's what he's commenting but then on. she does say the job's been in the family for generations I got elected because folks got used to voting for Rackham yeah so that's yeah. another well you know in small towns they the elect, puzzle. Yeah, they, no they elect the sheriff or the chief sure. or the constable or whatever she does seem like she's doing a good job though, yeah she's very competent and she introduces the agents to Reverend Lucas and she says she's brought him on board because the church has better historical records, and they do. And Lucas explains the story of the three sisters, Priscilla, Prudence, and Pollyanne Trask. They were accused of black magic because they grew prize roses while everyone else only grew thorns. Hmm. They were bound and weighed down with chains and thrown into the pond. This was how they tested for witchcraft. If they sunk, they were innocent. Of course, they will also be dead. Thus ended the brief witch hysteria in Shiloh. Yeah, so if you were... This is so fucking stupid. If someone was like, oh, we think you're a witch, we're gonna chain you up and throw you into a lake, and if you drown, then I guess that meant you were innocent and we committed murder for no reason. But then if you float, then we're gonna burn you to death. So right. it was just a very no one's. I mean, it also seemed like you know they they grew roses and everybody else's didn't, and so it's like so you're gonna what? accuse them of witchcraft because they're better at gardening than you are. <laughs> well, and that's another thing though is yeah. that like you know the um, knowledge of how to cultivate, fix up stuff that had healing properties and all this sort of stuff was associated with shamanism and so like if you were really good at all that sort of stuff it's mm. like ooh that's very suspicious you know you're you must be using magical powers instead of just you're good at something right or you're lucky or you're the soil in the back of your cabin is better than mine like it's, it's just it's well, so fucking ridiculous and people got accused of witchcraft for all stupid reasons yeah, it's all it's all about jealousy Catholicism and, right. is out of fucking control yeah. Well, no, this isn't Catholicism. This is the Puritans. They oh, re- the Puritans. Right, right, right. They, they no, even you're right. rejected Catholics. There's a lot of different kinds of Christianity yeah. out of control. At the, you know, I don't know. At that time? Yeah. At that, well, in general, <laughs> in all times. In all yes. times. And Reverend Lucas says uh, that the town was shamed by what they did, and so they buried all their connections with the crime also in the pond. So they buried all their sin in the pond. Gross. From across the street... At the Shiloh First Holy Church. And I want to point out the little church sign in the front. It says, Halloween dress up with Satan is a sin. So that gives you a little idea of what kind of church this is. Oh, man. Oh, I, I grew up in a small town in Alabama. And right, you were saying. I saw signs like that. Not, not exactly that exact wording, but. Right. Yeah. I, I got to say, though, the coloring here, if I can jump to a technical point where he's. He's in a dark room. He's looking out the uh, the slats of this window. Uh, yeah. and the way the light comes in and goes onto the wall is yeah. just beautifully painted. Really good job. I really like that. Yeah, agreed. So this is Pastor Blackwood, and he watches Rackham and the BPRD agents from the window. 
First the witches and now these demons. I can't stand by and let Satan take over. All right. And so Blackwood runs across the street and he asks to see the witches and he kind of bullies the janitor into letting him in. Which makes me sad. He seems like a nice little guy. Yeah. And he says that he's the only one who can understand the great evil the witches pose. And he reveals that his relative, the great Uriah Blackwood, was the one that threw them in the pond. So he's part of this lineage of... He kind of looks like that guy. He looks like that guy, yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, until he said that that was his... um, I thought he was the same I thought it was just like, he's been there the whole time going, nobody better get them I thought this was going to be like, that's (laughs) the the thing about the story this time, is that he's an immortal weirdo or something. I don't know. So Blackwood goes to the bodies and he says, you fooled everyone 300 years ago by dying in supposed innocence, but your demonic preservation unmasks you. Your evil is exposed. And the bodies kind of start to melt or they kind of start to turn into liquid or something. Uh, Dark water. Right. The sheets over the bodies flutter and the bodies melt down into this brown goop into the dark water. Soon the water engulfs the room with Blackwood, and it all goes down the drain. I guess it'd be something kind of like, I guess I had the idea it was like the consistency of like, like muddy water, yeah, kind of like that, uh, yeah, yeah, that mucky, swampy, almost kind of like that same crap that comes down with a volcano. Oh yeah. But I mean, it wouldn't be a volcano type stuff. But that's the only thing I could think of in my head. Swamp water. Yeah. So Hal comes in and he finds the bodies gone. And then he sees Blackwood trying to steal the bodies, putting them in a van. What do you think you're doing, he asks. The Lord's work, Hal, Blackwood responds. Shiloh will belong to God again. It is decreed. And Hal looks down in terror as this dark water kind of starts to come around his shoes. Back at the pond, the agents discuss with Rackham. Roger says the place feels strange. You can tell something bad happened here. Abe says that this was the repository of the town's ancient crime. But now it's loose, Roger interrupts. And Blackwood comes out of the church, and he looks like all, like, from here on out, he looks like all dirty, or he's kind of like, he's got remnants of this dark water all over him and his hair and everything. Wouldn't listen. And he's also got, like, angry, crazy eyes. (laughs) Yeah, he sure does. (laughs) Wouldn't listen to Uriah about witches. Won't listen to me about rock and roll and feminism. (laughs) They'll, also- <laughs> they'll listen now. Oh, yes. And Blackwood has this large kind of book under his arm. Well, at some point he also, I don't even know where it is in the story. At some point he he uses the term feminazi. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is like. So to, for, to add Constable Rackham. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, yeah, it's just. Ah, feminazi, the moniker applied to women who are not properly ashamed of being alive, I guess. Like. He wants all women to be dead, I suppose. I don't understand this guy's motives. Oh, no. He just wants them to be subservient yeah, towards man. men Gross. and quiet and in the kitchen. Going on about rock and roll and feminism, which yeah. is like, that's just the silliest thing to be mad at. It's like being mad at water. It's like, I, I warned them about grilled cheese and- I uh, warned them about <laughs> drinking water. Drinking water is so dangerous for you. It's the opposite. Mm. Reverend Lucas confronts Blackwood and asks him why he has the morgue van. And Blackwood gets into an argument over their differing perspectives. Blackwood mentions that he is taking the witches to their rightful destruction. As Blackwood escalates, the dark water begins to envelop Lucas. And 
I just want to point out this little panel at the bottom where Blackwood is saying, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord vengeance. And in Guy Davis's little notes in the back, he talks about how he wanted to make Blackwood's hair look like it was underwater. Yeah. And so the, you kind of get a little yeah, sense yeah. of that there. Yeah. Sure. Interesting. Yeah, I really like that. That's cool. The waters of Shiloh were once the medium of God. Vengeance on the Trash sisters, now empowered by divine retribution. Ugh. They will finish cleansing this immoral town. Once I dispose of the witches, I will be rewarded. God will empower me to lead a great revival in Shiloh, and all will come to him or perish. And so while he's doing this, he's just kind of totally um, summoning this dark water all over Lucas. Rackham fires her gun into the air and yells at Blackwood to let Lucas go. Ah, the feminazi cop and her demonic friends, Blackwood responds. And he commands the dark water onto them. And he creates like these mud men or muck men or whatever. Well, I like what Roger says. Plumbing problems? Yeah. <laughs> Again? <laughs> well, even Roger says mud men. Yeah. Like, are you not a mud man? And they, they fight. Uh, Abe and Roger fight. And Rackham tries to free Lucas. Roger eventually opens a fire hydrant. And he's able to get rid of all the dark water that way. His little butt just hanging out. <laughs> yeah, we get some we get some butt in here too. We, we'll get a really good one that I want to point out cute. later. It's just cute. Roger guesses that Blackwood is going to put the bodies back in the water in the ocean. So we cut to the beach, and Blackwood throws the bodies in the water. The agents show up with Rackham, and Blackwood remarks, "I was right. They are witches. They float." Roger goes, is it even possible that he's right? And Rackham just responds, hello, all corpses float. <laughs> Once they don't have fucking chains on them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that. When she said that in the line, I was like, duh. <laughs> it's like my brain just all of a sudden clicked back on. Yeah, <laughs> me too. It's like she's not only telling Roger, but she's telling us at the, as the audience too. She's also got a very like Lucille Ball kind of expression yeah. here, which yeah. I love. Guy Davis gives her a lot of personality yeah. for her just being this, like, kind of, this, not one of our ongoing characters. Yeah. The agents, Rackham and Lucas, figure that the woman stayed preserved because the crime against them was never acknowledged. They were denied dignity and final closure. The town's sin and denial festered in the pond and took on a life of its own, and now it's possessed Blackwood. So... The, the dark water being, you know, holding all their sins for so long has become its own thing. Well, and so he's saying, let's give them a proper burial at sea kind of a deal. Right. I actually kind of really like that, how it's like they, they murdered the three women and then their their shame, they buried all the, implement, the implements and, yeah. in the water too. But it's like the evil that they did just festered in that like water. Wind, yeah. Um, and it's like, it's yeah. infected. Uh, I just like that aspect of the story. They, they do a lot of that in Supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> and Abe says, I've seen cases where the victim's need for justice creates an endless cycle of guilt, denial, and revenge. I'm hoping a funeral can close that off. Yeah, that'd be good, Roger says, as they fight this giant water tentacle. <laughs> Lucas begins performing the last rites as Abe takes on Blackwood. Are those the last rites, or is that just a funeral thing? that he's doing i don't know i figured that was I think, the last i think last rites is what you do when someone's still alive ah as, okay. as they're dying and then i think this is th i think this is something else that he's just, just like oh you're already dead we commend you to the lord that well, kind of thing i uh i don't 
know a lot, but from what movies have taught me, <laughs> uh, they have done the last rites, or they, or they call it the last rites when they do it over the dead bodies to calm the spirit. But once again, that's movies that I know my information from. Right, <laughs> this right. Is all, but this is all ashes to ashes and stuff. I think that's once someone's already dead. Last rites are like, what? this just reminds me of Constantine when he's like oh, saying yeah. all that stuff. I, I love know. that movie. Again, just what I know is from movies. I've never actually seen anyone perform Last Rites or anything. But this yeah. kind of also made me think of some of the other stories that we've read, like where something bad has happened and then something has to happen for it to, for go, it to away. go away. Like I, And the one that it made me think of right away was Sleeping in the Dead, where they oh. tortured that little girl, yeah. they turned her into the hag, and then... Once they let her out of that room and she could kill the main vampire, then she kind of was able to rest. Yeah. yeah. I think we've seen that in some other stories, sure. too. I wish I could recall. But that, that, that concept is kind of an yeah. ongoing theme. Very interesting. And I would be really interested to know what that sort of a thing would be in other cultures and other, not even necessarily religions, just right. other cultures. Like, I know that we recently watched something where it was like, there was um, a, a Buddhist pyre funeral where they were burning the bodies and the smoke was going up and they were like he was someone uh, rollins henry rollins he was saying no one there was sad no one was crying and then he asked someone he remarked to someone next to him he was like yeah we're buddhist baby yeah you know what i mean yeah. like it's one of those kind of a so I, I would it would just be so interesting to see a a story that had a similar structure that would maybe have a different ending like yeah. yeah we're buddhist baby like you know kind of a thing so it's just a very interesting it just depends on the culture maybe it depends on the location in the world that you are maybe it depends on the people and the religion if you have a religion if you're what your practices and beliefs and how you live your life your lifestyle and that sort of thing so that really opens up a lot of you know what would it be like if it wasn't a specific town right kind of right. A thing. so yeah. anyway i don't know that got me on a whole different tangent but that we were saw this Henry Rollins uh, book tour that he was doing where he was showing all his photographs and he traveled all over the world. And that really kind of made me really think about when I'm reading stuff like this, I was like, well, what if they weren't right. Christian? Like what if, what would happen? You know? So anyway, and before we go on, I just want to point out how awesome guy Davis puts all this stuff in motion. Yeah. All the dark water slamming around the giant tentacle, Abe and Blackwood fighting and everything. There's just a lot of kinetic energy there. And um, he just does a really good job with it. I like that. Hard agree. Super agree. The the, the movement and the motion is yeah. perfect. Really looks great. It's it's yeah. Like it's, this could this could be an animation. Yeah, this panel that's on the top left of one seventy six, where Rackham is shooting at the thing, and sure. Roger's just like punching it. <laughs> this big like tentacle thing. I re I just really love all that. Well, and when they're struggling and someone's being pushed and someone's falling, like yeah, it, 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 none of it looks awkward. It all looks very natural. Like. It's it's all like they're really moving. There's a lot of movement to it, like you were saying. It's very kinetic, like you like you said. And I like that one panel on one seventy five at the very end where uh the priest is uh He's just standing there. He's standing the there water. and all this stuff's going in the background. Yeah. <laughs> he's all like he's out there, he's like, All right, gotta do these last rites or whatever they are. It yeah. gives it, well it, it gives it, it it lends the scene a very hectic kind of um There are just all these moving parts happening at it's once. It's a very urgent yes. kind of a scene. Yeah, yeah. 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 and I, I agree. Like and there are some movies like that where the, all that stuff's going on in the background and you're just focused on this one guy in the foreground and it's very well done. I agree. And as Lucas finishes up his service for the for the three sisters they start to sink into the into the ocean no blackwood screams pushing abe away they do not deserve a sanctified burial and he goes in the water after them 
It's run out of gas, Roger says, as the dark water stops fighting. The coloring on this page right, is yeah. so beautiful and creepy and ethereal. It's like really eerie. So Blackwood, he goes after them, and then we see in the water, we see the three women. They're like shapes, and they grab Blackwood, and they pull him down into the water. And then the water kind of splashes really high. It's over, Roger says. And I like the uh, that that final panel where the light is. It looks like the light is coming from the top. It's like you know, like after the the storm, you know, the yeah. uh, the clouds part and the light starts yeah, coming back in. It does look like that. As the agents are leaving, the mayor says that he's learned an important lesson. You've learned not to persecute witches, Roger asks. <laughs> the uh, the most important <laughs> lesson, yes, that would be the one. In a way, we've learned not to hide our past, especially if we can turn it into tourism dollars. Ugh. And he holds up a sign that says, Shiloh is witch country. Gross. <laughs> and then that, that look on his face, just a politician. Just a politician. Yes. And then, of course, we've got our lovely, amazing constable. Like, yeah, cashing in on shameful past sounds exactly perfect. Good plan. Right. And she says, I wonder what Pastor Blackwood would think of that. And then we cut to this last panel. And we see Blackwood down there with the three skeletons bound in the chains, just screaming in anguish. The Wild. end. Yeah, so that's a that's a great one, and I le- a good one to introduce Guy Davis to all of us. Next, we're going to talk about Night Train, story by Jeff Johns and Scott Collins, art by Scott Collins and Dave Stewart, and letters by Pat Broussal. I gotta say, I love Jeff Johns. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers. Yeah, Jeff Johns. It's it's yeah. great to see him on this Hellboy book. Yeah, when I saw his name, I was like, Jeff Johns wrote the, what? What? Yeah. This is, I I didn't know he ever wrote a BPRD story. Yeah. Oh, like me I'm neither. just getting into this is really making me realize how much I just don't know. About yeah. Some of my favorite artists and writers. It's really yeah. Really when cool. I saw that, I was just like, oh my god, that's like he's one of the top heads of DC he's right great. now. Yeah. He's great. So, oh, uh, and his writing. I mean, his stuff. whole run on Green Lantern is amazing. You should check did it out he if you haven't. Flash stuff. Am I? He did. Yeah, yeah, he did some good Flash stuff. Yeah, he anyway. brought he brought Barry Allen back. That's right. Yeah, that was him. Anyway, we open in Colorado, 1939, and Lobster Johnson and Bob run on top of a moving train. He has no place left to run, the lobster says. And I love this um, th- this first like just introduction of them just like running. Some crazy stuff is happening. You know, we get the sense again, like Danielle was saying, it's very urgent yeah. what's going on here. Should we get into how you can't run on top of a trainer? That's not necessary, right? Like, Hey, this is no, the no. lobster we're talking about, all right? <laughs> uh, I was going to say that uh, this this whole panel uh, page thing, it's, got, it's very... Dynamic. Yeah, it and is. It's got for that. Sure. It's almost got kind of almost slight like movie poster quality to it. Sure, yeah. sure. The lobster explains that the train is carrying scientists and equipment for the Manhattan Project. The what? Bob says. You don't want to know. Lobster responds. Mm. And we all know that the Manhattan Project was the research and development team that created the first nuclear weapons. Boo. The lobster catches up to the Nazi, and the lobster asks him to tell him what he wants with the train. Or feel the lobster's claw. Nice. <laughs> the man says that he wants to see the fatherland get the bomb first, and you dead. And what is your saying? Feed two birds with one scone? That's right. <laughs> this is a reference to Danielle's bird-friendly usage of that intended phrase. <laughs> and the scone is made out of uh, like crushed-up millet flowers okay. that's <laughs> safe for them to eat or something. I don't know. And the Nazi jumps off the track. 
and the track blows up. And so I like how he's like, oh, and I got to get a swastika on my parachute here. You know what I mean? Got to have my brand going on. So kitschy. It's incredible. I saw that. I was just like, why do Nazis always got to put their symbol on their parachutes? And then I thought about like, oh, wait. How many times have I seen the American flag on a parachute? That is true. Or the Japanese flag on a parachute? Oh, yeah. That is Just, very true. What's up with putting flags on a damn parachute? <laughs> what's up with flags in general? Right. And so the track explodes in front of the train and it all goes down and we get some really awesome shots here of just all the destruction they do a really good job of just making this look um really catastrophic someone told me i had to draw a train crashing i would be like yeah it's it it looks like a lot there's all the effort to really there's all the stuff falling out of the train and all the debris from the track i was like i like this one panel where you're seen in the windows and like there's a guy playing cards oh yeah and there's somebody kind of falling forward towards him and then the guy behind him he's like yeah it's just like i mean that it really drives home that these like people they're just people just chilling yeah we see the Nazi land safely and the train crashes down in a fiery explosion. The lobster emerges from the wreckage and he sees all the dead passengers. All of those poor men. Justice will. And then he looks over and he sees that Bob is dead too. And I just love the whole pacing of this page. I love the lobster coming up where he says, yeah. where? And there's all the rain coming off of him and everything. It just, um, just really good, really good page layout. Is that like his Bucky? moment yeah yeah okay we cut to the bprd headquarters in fairfield connecticut and roger gobbles down a lobster and so like on the last shot they showed the uh, lobster johnson's like kind of chest plate and then on the next panel it's roger holding that little lobster claw if if it was like in a movie you would actually kind of see it sure yeah Yeah. one or the other although is this the first time we've actually seen roger eat i'm not i wasn't sure I think you're right. Yeah, uh, I don't it, know it, if we've ever seen him eat before. I mean, but he's really enjoying himself. Oh, uh, that's really, yeah. But I mean, it's just like when you think of like the homunculus, I think of like golems and yeah. like. But I guess, I guess he can eat. Why not? Yeah, he's a little sweetie pie. And Liz passes him her plate, and she says, "Take mine, Roger. I can't eat anything boiled alive. Too close to home." But that made me think, like, why did she order it? Like, why they, would she order that? Do they yeah. all have to get lobster? I exa- I was. Thinking Is it that like, oh, like, BPRD cafeteria serving lobster today? Everyone's got to get one. Why did you order that? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's just a minor. She's thing got here. wine. He's got a little mug of beer. He's really enjoying himself. He's got. He's in good company, and he's just eating delicious food that he likes. And he's got a nice cold, frosty ale beverage here and it's just he's so sweet and the expression on his face and then of course him gobbling up all the stuff is really cute we've got some bullies that are about to totally fucking ruin his mood yeah and Liz, go ahead before you get to that i mean um yeah why did she order the lobster these guys got burgers (laughs) over here that's right okay there you go yeah yeah anyway maybe she just had second thoughts after it came or whatever and she was just like oh maybe i don't want this after all but Liz and Roger interact with these two guys. They have a one and two on their uniform, and they appear identical and seem to move identically as well. So maybe their powers are... And they're both holding the one tray. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. They, they, it seems like they move together, too. When you look at them sitting down, they're both kind of in the same Well, they just position. invite themselves to sit at their table. And I know that they're in an open cafeteria, but it still seems very... These people seem very rude to me. Yeah. And they ask Liz to heat up their burgers, and they mention that they owe her one for the assist with the leopard prince last week. 
Any any guy that's like, hey, you owe me for this, right. I'm immediately <laughs> like, you're a dick. Well, I didn't guess they're blowing their favor on her and heating up the meat. Yeah, really. <laughs> you would might you might want to save that for a, a better favor down the line. It's like, sure. hey, you know how you owe me? I want you to go microwave my sandwich for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're and then we're even. And then they, here she says, I'm going to grab a smoke. She's got a cigarette in her hand. She's already smoking. <laughs> so I guess it's just an excuse to be like, I'm getting the fuck away from you too. Right, You're very right. annoying. Yeah, Excuse that, me. That's the way I took it. Yeah. yeah. And Roger says to her, you smoke too much. And then they tell Liz that she's a good egg for working with the homunculus, even after he killed you that one time. You know, you're a lucky thing, Roger. Poor sweet Roger's face. This really broke my heart. And Roger, yeah, he just frowns down at his lobster. And Manning comes in with some gear, and he tells Roger and Liz that they're going camping. Well, I like how the two jackasses, um, they say, what up, Manning? And he's like, Dr. Manning. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't it, like them either. It's just like, you know, they're, they're probably the jerks. There. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like, why would you just ruin someone's day like that? He's having a good time. Leave him be. But yeah, I like, yeah like you said, this guy just is like, uh, it's Dr. Manning, you jerks. Yeah. <laughs> and so they have all the gear and he Manning tells Liz and Roger that some ghost trains have been appearing with increasing frequency and appearing every night this week. Manning wants them to check it out and says it would be good for the two of them to get some fresh air. And oh. while he's doing that, Roger's kind of putting out Liz's cigarette. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, I was, I was literally cute. just about to comment oh, okay. on that. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And then the look on her face is like, did Roger just take my cigarette out and crush yeah. it in front of me? <laughs> and now we cut to Cottonville, Alabama. Is this a real place, Aubrey? Yes. Oh, interesting. I had to look it up uh, because I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. I've been like everywhere in Alabama and I'm pretty sure I've been there. I think that you could not pay me enough money to go to a place called Cottonville, <laughs> Alabama. Well, it looks it looks like the night view is pretty. It does look gorgeous. Well, there, there are a lot of gorgeous places in Alabama, um, I will admit, because, you know, it's out in the middle of nowhere, so there are no street lights or anything. But uh, if you were to go through Cottonville, you'd blink and then you're done. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think I'm talking more about interacting oh, with people. Oh, don't worry. You'll, you'll go by real fast. In Cottonville, Roger and Liz roast marshmallows. And Liz teaches Roger about s'mores. Aww. Do I need to talk about s'mores? Do, does everyone know what they are? You're like, killing I was, me, Smalls. I was trying to think about this. Like, Do people all over the world know what s'mores are? Let's just say, well, she explains. She's like, you put a gray, you get, a, you get the gram. Mm-hmm. You get the graham cracker, right? You put some chocolate on the fire, you melt it a little, you put it on the s'more. You get the marshmallow, you roast the marshmallow, the mallow, and you put it on there and you add another gram. And then mm. that's the graham cracker chocolate marshmallow sandwich called the s'mores. Yes. Although I, I like how she says, I don't know what the big deal is because I completely agree with her. <laughs> And um, very messy. One thing that I did find is the first recipe for a s'more was in a cookbook from 1920. Oh, okay. So it dates back that far. And Roger kind of eats it blankly. I like this this little panel where he kind of puts it in his mouth, and then he's just like, "It's good." You can tell like he's just still all riled up. And Liz quickly stands up and says, "You're still worried about what those dicks said, aren't you?" That's <laughs> very. I feel very close to Liz right now. So worried about what those dicks said. I gotta point out that how um, Liz is wearing like a suit in camping. 
it's extremely Scully. Well, and yeah. yeah, and it's 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 a similar one that she was wearing in uh, Seat of Destruction. You think she would be in like with the big uh, jeans and a flannel? collar and the yeah, like and the sleeves and all that? I don't know. And Liz recalls the events of Wake the Devil. And she says that she saw an escape from her powers when she first saw Roger. She said that she wanted to give him the power. She had had enough. Liz tells Roger that he gave her a second chance when he brought her back to life. And this happened at the end of Almost Colossus. And she tells him that he has nothing to feel bad about. And Roger just looks down at the fire. Sweet baby. Suddenly the ghost train appears. Roger and Liz run after it. And we see soldiers exit it when it stops. And I like Liz running out of breath. Uh-huh, you yeah. know, she's like, oh, I'm going to need a cigarette. And Roger's just kind of looking at her. Uh, it's like they snuck their anti-smoking ad in there. <laughs> I know. Which, which is good. Don't smoke. Yeah, don't smoke. Uh, I have to quit. And Liz explains to Roger that most ghosts need something to be put to rest before they can move on. And we just saw that kind of in the last story that we've read. Right, you were talking about that. And I love how Roger, you know, hearing this information, then he runs up to oh. the ghost and he's like, what do you want? Hello. <laughs> we want to help. Want? What a sweetie pie. And so the ghost just kind of run past him, and one of them hits him with the butt of his gun. That kind of thing never works, Liz says. Aww. But Liz notices that they're running into a house, and we also see someone watching from inside the house. An old Nazi. They enter, and Liz shows her badge. I'm always, I always like seeing the badge, yeah, and so you kind of see here, it looks like a typical badge, but it's got the BPRD logo on it. Which is goes along with what we've seen in other stories, so I always like that. She tells the man that he is attracting an interesting crowd, and we realize through their conversation that this is the same Nazi that blew up the track with Lobster Johnson in 1939, but now he's an old man. Nazis are never too old to take out. You can always get them. Wasn't right. there recently? We just I was going to say Nazi. that. Yeah, love it. He's like 90 years old. Get him out of here. Sorry, Nazi. Not sorry at all. The man- oh, I was, that was sarcasm. <laughs> the man tells Liz that he's been running for years, never really sleeping, but the train keeps following him. He tells Roger that he wrecked the train. It was a long time ago. It was just a job. And if you look closely while he's saying that, he's kind of taking this device out, and then he kind of leans on Liz and he puts it on her. But it's very subtle. It's like one of those, I like those little yeah. artistic details. When he puts it on Liz, it kind of shocks her or something. What have you done, Roger asks. I did my job. I set your Manhattan Project back years. Yeah, and I almost got that verdampt lobster as well. Lobster Johnson? You're, You're a, a Nazi. Nazi! I love that. That's I love like, it. That's a very Hellboy response. Like he, started, he puts those threads together, and he's like, wait a minute. In that same story, it was almost Colossus when we saw it when we first met the lobster. Hellboy's like Nazi, yeah, punch, and he punches that guy. Yeah, exactly. It's like a reflex. And we know now, like Aubrey said, Roger knows all about Nazis after the events of Conquer Worm. We learn that the device that the man put on Liz transferred his aura to her, mm. and so now the soldiers are going after her and Roger instead of him. And I like how he can see auras. Oh yeah, and it's just like part of his. Th- I guess, yeah. That's part of his, like, extrasensory abilities. Sure. The ghosts take Liz from Roger, and Roger struggles against them. But they take her away from him to the train. And Roger's, you know, he's really upset. He's yelling back at them. He calls her Elizabeth. Yeah, he does. Then he looks up, and he's suddenly rescued by the ghost of Lobster Johnson. So cool. Yeah, I love that. And then so Lobster Johnson just says, go, run now. So Roger just runs after the train. The ghost of Lobster Johnson. Yes. I love that. 
When you said that, it made me think of that one song, The Ghost of Tom Joad. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good, I like that song. <laughs> now I want to hear it as The Ghost of Lobster Johnson. Nice. Roger runs after the train, and he jumps on it, and he wrestles his way through all the ghosts to get to Liz. All the, and I like all the while he's trying to reason with the ghost. He's like, hey, listen, you've got the wrong guy. Yeah. That's not him. And he's trying to like tell the ghost you know, what's happening. I just like how he's still appealing to them. Roger tries to pull the device away, but Liz screams out and she tells him to smash it. So he crushes it in his hand. And I just think Dave Stewart is killing it on these colors on this sure, page, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. I, I think he does a really good job with, like, this purple light and everything, and it looks really good. He really does a lot. You can tell that he's he's doing a lot here. The train comes to a stop, and Roger carries a limp Liz out and puts her on the ground. And I guess he's not sure here if she's alive or not. She's got some blood coming out of her mouth. And he has this, like, vision, right? He imagines these horrible things, like... We never should have trusted you. Yeah, and you can see, like, they depowered him. You let us down. We should have blown you up when you had the chance. Yeah, and they're putting him, like, in a crate or something. Oh, God, and that's just something that, well, you can really... I can kind of relate. I can kind of relate to poor Roger here, because if you feel like you've let someone down that you love, you just start to imagine just what a horrible person I am for letting everyone down. But like Roger's just the sweetest, most well-intentioned little dude. And it's just such a, you really feel for him here because you know that that like imposter syndrome is just so hard because he's trying to find his way in the world. And he's got all this self doubt because even his own coworkers are like, Oh, you're just a thing. You fucking killed our coworker. You're dick. Like, what a horrible panel here that we've got. And it's just so sad. He starts crying. Yeah. And he hears a voice. Roger. Roger, she's alive. And it's Lobster Johnson's ghost again. Ghost of Lobster Johnson. Yes. And Liz wakes up. She thanks Roger. He just says, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So here, I was trying to figure out this note that I wrote. So you see when Lobster Johnson tells Roger she's alive. Mm-hmm. And then you see all the soldiers, and there's that little old man there. There's a guy, yeah. Is oh, that yeah. the guy? That's the yeah. guy. They got him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I was trying to, I was like, what? what is that? I'm glad we got to talk about that. They finally put the past to rest, Liz tells Roger. Good idea, don't you think? Yes, I guess so, Roger says. So this is kind of right. It's talking about what just happened, but it also is talking about Roger letting the past go with all that stuff that happened when he was first awoken in Wake the Devil. It's a good little, yeah, it kind of ties those threads together of when Liz was trying to talk to him at the campsite and all that sort of thing. Also, his little butt. Yeah, there's his butt again. We've got some boobs and some butts in this episode and well, also this is some more of a cute like when you see a toddler with a shirt that with like, no <laughs> pants he's just running around the house you know it just reminds me of just like it's just cute and lobsters johnson's ghost looks on the end the ghost of lobster yeah. Johnson. i just like saying that now we're gonna read there's something under my bed this story is by joe harris pencils by adam polina inks by guillermo zubagia Colors by Lee Lowridge and letters by Pat Broussel. Zubiaga? Zubiaga. I don't know. We open in Masonville, Pennsylvania, and we have this scene of two parents trying to get their kid to bed. And they argue while they're doing it, you know, and they're kind of arguing amongst themselves. 
and there's a stuffed toy in the room with them that has horns. The kid, Bobby, thinks someone is in the room with him. So they're kind of talking about that. They're telling him that there's nobody in this room at night but you. I gotta say, I really like the uh, look of the, like, the stuffed animal with the camera in it. The design of it is... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, we learn later that it's got a camera in it. Okay, yes. Thank you. I, oh, I mean, that's that the first thing I thought of because of like nanny cams and all yeah, that. Yeah. Because, you know, abs- you see him squeeze it. One of the eyes is bigger. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Because we see that footage later. So later that night, Bobby is awoken to something under his bed calling its name. It's a big, like, fuzzy monster thing, and it tries to scare Bobby. But the kid doesn't seem afraid of it. And he just talks about how his parents don't talk to him and how they don't care about him. It is true, then, the monster says. They aren't afraid. And he clicks this device and takes the kid in a flash of light. At the BPRD... The agents watch the nanny cam footage. They see the monster taking taking little Bobby away. Kate says that the lights cut out when Bobby was taken, and Bobby had told his parents that someone named Charlie lived under the bed. More children have been reported missing, and Kate has four potential kids that might be taken next. So the agents are going to report there. Abe says to Kate, Kate, obviously we're going to bring these things down, and assuming the worst is certainly in order. But you question whether Charlie meant Bobby any real harm, Kate says. I, well, yes, that's what I... And Kate interrupts. And it upsets you that how, shall we say, average people usually do assume the worst when considering the motivations of the above average, I mean. And Roger just says, she's good. And Abe's like, shut up. Because to- she's totally reading through all of his bullshit. And we kind of saw some of their interaction in Hollow Earth. They have like a, you know, they have a good relationship where they know each other. Even Abe says to her, you don't come by my quarters unless it's about work. You know, so they they know each other really well. At the home, the parents are hesitant to have the weird BPRD agents in their house. But Johan soon charms the little kid with an ectoplasmic butterfly. But Abe is sulking the entire time. Liz tells Abe to go and he hides in the closet. Liz and Johan talk about how Abe isn't enthusiastic about the case. And they have some conversation about Abe, which I thought was also interesting. Liz says, Abe doesn't seem very enthusiastic about a lot of things, but I can't say I blame him. He's got few reasons to give a crap about anything or anybody, but he does anyway, so I guess that counts for something. And just then the lights go out. Liz lights up her hand and calls in the agents. Upstairs, the monster appears in the closet where Abe was hiding. So I like this idea that Abe's hiding in the closet, and then the monster also appears in the same closet where he is. And the monster grabs Abe and swipes the agents away with its tail, but seems puzzled when it sees Abe. Because I guess, you know, he he's a monster too. The monster holds up the little teleport device to teleport away, and Abe runs after him, and he ends up getting teleported away instead of the little girl. And now we get to see where they're being teleported to. It's an old toy store called House of Toys. When I first saw that, I was just like, you know, because like, you know, like, oh, the monster teleported him. I started thinking of something like Little Monsters. Was it Little Monsters? Were they? Yeah, yeah Little so, Monsters. So they're going to go into this crazy. No, they just go to an abandoned toy store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to love that movie. And here we learn that the monsters have their own little hierarchy. They're all like these stuffed toy looking monsters, and they seem upset that this monster brought Abe instead of the kid. And from another room, Abe watches through a keyhole, and he's with all the abducted kids in there. 
and he makes a plan. He tells one of the kids for them to fake a tummy ache and to get the monsters to open the door so he can run out and get the teleporter. But then there's this moment where he just realizes they're all staring at him because he's a fish man. I meant the other monsters, Abe says, and he notices a grate on the wall. Hmm, who wants to crawl through filth for ice cream, he tells the kids. <laughs> Back with the monsters, we learn that they are nightmares, and the leader with the eye patch who's bullying the rest is Oogie. So I think this is kind of interesting. Like, all their names are, like, those monster noises, like Oogie Boogie or whatever. Like, that's the sound that they make, but it's also their name, kind of like a Pokemon-type thing. Or Made me think of uh, Oogie Boogie from... Um nightmare before christmas yeah that's right that's that's maybe what i'm thinking of and so this one oogie he plans to take it all the way scaring the kids was just a prelude so he's planning to do you know something more sinister to the kids and they go after the kids but they find the room empty except for abe and bobby and abe's trying to get bobby out but bobby doesn't want to go because his parents suck they just use me to hurt each other Not all monsters have to be bad, do they? He says to Abe. I'm thinking someone needs to be separated from the other children, Abe thinks to himself. It's a few rotten apples that ruin the applesauce, he sends to Bobby. And Oogie says he's done playing around. Eat the little pukes. So this this is what he was planning to do, right? This last panel down here at the bottom reminds me a little bit of the animation for some of the monsters in Cool World. Oh, yeah. It's very sinister and gross, but also extremely cartoony. And Abe saves these two kids from getting eaten by one of the monsters. Not quite the thoroughly modern monsters are you, Abe says. Eating children is so done. Cancelled. And he gives an aw crap as the monsters come at him, and that makes me think of Hellboy. Yeah. Yeah. And Abe fights the monster and through all this stuff. There's this one panel in the middle where they throw Abe and there's all these basketballs. And it kind of made me think of the Monstars from oh, yeah. Space Jam. Does, don't they kind of look like those monsters, <laughs> sure. right? They do. Totally. Oh, man. The monster throws Abe against the wall, and we reveal that Abe has a teleporter device. So he, he was able to get one of those from the monsters. Oogie gets Bobby, and one of the other monsters intervenes, taking Oogie away. And we hear Oogie gets his other eye clawed out by the other monsters. So I guess the other monsters have had enough of Oogie as well. You know, he's trying to eat the kids and he's scaring all of them. So, you know, their monster hierarchy, I guess, takes care of that. And Abe has the teleporter device and he tries to use it, but it just ends up being a toy that plays music. But just as we think that Abe is screwed, we see the BPRD agents arrive. Fangs back in mouth, raise your claws and step away from the children, the agent says. They mean the other guys, I'm pretty sure, Abe says. Really funny the way that they're all just like, they're coming down on these ropes from these helicopters and like, you know, yelling stuff and checking their gear and it's just great. Sorry we took so long. Sure, for you guys, they come along quietly. So they've gotten, with all the kids, you know, they're able to manage the kids better than Abe was. And we just see all the stuffed toy monsters on the floor. Liz says Abe's tracking beacon finally got through the weird energy patterns the toy store had, and they were able to locate him. And she tells Abe, to be safe, we'll torch the entire store. Everything, all right? And Abe sees Bobby leaving with one of the toys, and Bobby (laughs) kind of tells him, like, to be quiet. And so Abe just gives him the okay sign. Sure, I think everything's just fine. So he's going to let Bobby get away with one of those monsters. I like what Abe says here when Liz is saying, we got your tracking. He's all like, 
I wish I could explain what the hell I've seen. <laughs> yeah. And I like how she's like, oh, we're going to have some cocoa. And he's like, I need a shot of something in mind. Yeah. <laughs> some cocoa and whiskey. Yes. And so now we're back at Bobby's house. His parents are great now. They almost lost their kids. So maybe they're a little bit more appreciative of him. And Bobby gets his juice finally. And um, Bobby willingly sleeps. There are no more monsters under the bed. Just imaginary friends. And we see the stuffed toy monster under the bed. The end. I gotta say, this whole story just reminded me of like Little Monsters and Monsters, Monsters Inc. Oh yeah, meets Toy Story meets the the ones you guys brought up. Right, yeah, all wrapped in crippling childhood. Yeah, (laughs) awesome. So now we're gonna talk about another day at the office. This is our last story for today. In August 2004, Mignola created this eight-page story specifically for the collection The Soul of Venice and Other Stories. Story by Mignola, art by Cameron Stewart, colors by Michelle Madsen, and letters by Michael Hessler. This is our first story by Mignola in a while. On the Soul of Venice, it said Michael Amon Oving with Mignola. So I guess Mignola helped Oming do some of it, but... Well, I was just well, I'm, I was just referring to that um, this is the first one that's straight Mignola. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I just want to make sure that I get this name because I'm going to be mad at myself. Miles Gunter, Michael Avon Oming with Mike Mignola. So I think Oming and Gunter did the most of it, but Mignola probably had some little notes in there. We open on Bolgrad, Moldavia, and we get Abe Sapien and Johan, and they meet Rachel Turner from the London office. So here we learn that the BPRD is kind of worldwide and they have different offices all over the world. She says, it's in here. You sure it's a zombie, Abe says? You tell me, pal. And they check out this guy. They have this man bound to a chair, tied, and he just looks all crazed. His eyes are completely blank and he's like growling. And so Abe looks at it and Agent Turner says, told you, apparently a bunch of them wandered into town yesterday, but the locals took care of them. <laughs> and so we get this one really cool panel of all the locals just like beating down they these zombies. not having it. Yeah. It's like, we, we've been here before, we're done with this shit, but right. I like how the one guy's got the broom and he knocked the jaw off of him. Yeah. <laughs> like he just swept that jaw right off that zombie. By the time we got here, there was just this one left. He was hiding in a bush. And so Johan uses his ectoplasm powers on the zombie man. This man died of natural death. His spirit has passed over. But there is something, just a trace, another personality not far from here. Robert Huntley? Who? And so the zombie, he's like, Huntley, no. Kurya, he screams. And so when the zombie screams this, all the windows in the church shatter And back in the room, we see that the zombie's head just blew clean off. Not just that. It looked like his chest split open. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're right. The skin just came off him there. (laughs) Gross. 48 minutes later, Turner is in a car with Abe and Johan and some other agents. And she explains, Count Yeager Curia, bloodthirsty tyrant, national hero, the usual stuff. He built this monastery in 1448, and he was buried here after his assassination. There's also a legend about this place and a hidden treasure. Of course, Abe says. Hey, look, zombies, one of the agents says. This must be the place. And so there's zombies guarding uh, this monastery. They're all very nonplussed by the zombie. Like, the guy's just like, yeah, you guys go on ahead. We'll take care of this thing. It's yeah, like they're I'm, talking about cleaning up dog poop or something. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because... They start shooting at all the zombies, the regular agents, and then Johan and Abe go through the crowd. 
I would not feel safe as Abe or Johan going through that crowd while they're shooting at the zombies. It's just very businesses. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're doing paperwork. They're like non plus white, but I'd be I'd be worried about getting shot. You're walking through all the horde of zombies that are getting shot at. I, I don't know. I just that seems unsafe to me. Well, I mean, Johan is literally shoving one aside. Yeah. very <laughs> casually. <laughs> Extremely it's, nonchalant. It's like you say they're they're taking, taking care of it the way you take care of dog food. It's just yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very casual and like I guess these are the old school slow zombies. Right. But, yeah. I also like to point out that they're just kind of sort of over zombies, and this came out in what two thousand three, right Super around super over it, yeah. right around the time that zombies were kind of starting coming back. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. So when they enter the monastery, they see that someone has dug up something in front of the in front of the pulpit or whatever. And there's like, um, I guess there was a coffin under there, so that's been dug up. What do you think, Abe says? Johan, perhaps Huntley was looking for, and then they hear somebody laughing, and there's a figure in the balcony. Yeah, this guy's a fucking nerd. Yeah. Do, do not seek me in the earth. I am risen from the grave to set my house in order. And Abe is just like, Robert Huntley? He's possessed by the spirit of Yugo Coria, Johan says. And he's wearing Coria's skeleton as a necklace, Abe says. So gross. Constantinople has fallen. Send word to the emperor. The Turk demands tribute. Of me? Ha. Where is my sword? Where is my army? I'll swell these rivers with foreign blood. And so Abe just shoots him, and he shoots him with like this dart, like <laughs> and, and he dart. shoots him right in the neck. It's such a funny panel. The thwap as the you know he he's totally shocked while uh, that dart gets him. Such a. I just like hey, he's just going on and on yeah, and on like and on. Right. He's like, boom. yeah. <laughs> and outside, all the zombies fall as well. Well, that wasn't too bad. We're gonna need a truck. So yeah, these guys are just totally they're they're nonplussed with any of this. <laughs> Johan says it seems Robert Huntley had a psychic gift, but he was unaware of it until he disturbed Curia's remains. Then Curia, the dominant personality, made use of that gift to reanimate the recently dead. Bloodthirsty tyrant to bones on a rope, Abe says as he takes the bones off of Huntley. It was a bad day for Yigo Coria. And the end, and we just see, I, I guess, where they rebury it. And that's it. Those are all of our stories. So, like like I said in the beginning, all these stories were kind of like, they didn't know how they were going to take BPRD yeah. into the future. And so, you know, and I've read a lot about this because this was around the time that the Hellboy movie was coming out. They're sort of feeling it out. And the Hellboy movie was coming out, and there wasn't a lot of titles. And Mignola's over there working on the movie, so he hasn't really been able to write a lot. He's been busy, yeah. So during this time, we got the Hellboy Weird Tales, which are this uh, non-canon Hellboy stories that we'll probably go through later in the podcast. But we also get, these are almost like BPRD Weird Tales. Mm -hmm. I think they are considered canon, but it's kind of like, hey, Jeff Johns, let's get yeah. you to do this one. Hey, Cameron Stewart, why don't you do this one? And so they're kind of like throwing all these different ideas out. And just kind of seeing where the pieces fall. To be honest, this isn't my favorite right. BPRD stuff. Um, but there are some good stories in there. There's some good little character moments. Yeah, and that's my, you know, just what I, my takeaway from these is that we're kind of, we get to know these characters in a, you know, different way than we have right. previously. And that's good. 
I'll admit, when I when I read through them the other day, I was just like, they weren't my favorite. Right, but right. after sitting here going through them, uh, talking with you guys, I actually enjoyed them a little bit better. Yeah. Was, right, you right. know, because uh, those, those character moments that you mm-hmm. get between the different characters, that's actually what I really enjoyed between all this. Yeah. And then the stories themselves, while they were kind of neat, but I guess it all sums it up in the very last one. And it was just another day at the office. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Just to wrap it up here, we have some, we have a little bit of time. I wanted to talk about our survey. Thanks for everyone who participated in our survey. Um, there's no prize or anything. It's just kind of a community experiment. I just wanted we gave all of our top threes, and I wanted to know what y'all's top threes were. And we also had some comments, so I'm just gonna kind of go through this for one issue or less. John Lurita said pancakes. Gonzone Studio also said pancakes. XEO XED said the corpse was my early introduction to Hellboy, so purely for nostalgic reasons, I'll go for that. Okay. Comic Explorer said my favorite stories are the corpse, Box Full of Evil, and The Island. My favorite main story is The Wild Hunt, and we haven't gotten to that yet. At Alba24 Fernandez said pancakes also. Damning Root said the one shot where Hellboy teams up with a ghost. I don't know which, which one that is. There is a crossover where hellboy teams up with ghost the character ghost but i don't know if that's what he's referring to there was a lot of love for some of my picks in there which i was excited about like in the in the survey results or whatever yeah that was cool at vieco said the corpse at the griffin 88 said forever the pancakes one but the second one was the time he fought anubis so that's that dog in the gas station one that was one of the first ones and let's see what our um, results said from our survey so for the one issue or less, there were a ton of stories. There was like 30 stories, so I thought I'd do a top 10. Based on our community feedback, number 10 was The Virkulak. The Virkulak. Number 9 was Christmas Underground. Number 8, Baba Yaga. Number 7, Right Hand of Doom. Number 6, King Vold. Number 5, Nature of the Beast. Number 4, Heads. And then the top 3, number 3, Pancakes. Yeah. So that yeah. made it into the top 3. I thought that was pretty cool. Number 2, The Chain Coffin. Help meeting Hellboy's dad and learning his origin, and then number one was the corpse. Mm-hmm. Awesome. For the two issue or prestige category, um, some of the comments we got online: Kevin Alford said Macoma. Lassa Jurgensen says that's a hard question. I will I will make it a top three. I love the Midnight Circus. Fogredo's art is amazing. Yeah. Some great foreshadowing of things to come. Macoma is a close second. It's a great little story. Hellboy or no Hellboy. And the third is Box Full of Evil. Full Hellboy lore. I love it. Nathaniel Green said Wolves of St. August, Almost Colossus, and Box Full of Evil. And Edgar Sid said mine would be Wolves of St. August as number one and Almost Colossus and Into the Silent Sea rotating for two and three. Nice. Ross Radke said Wolves of St. August was my favorite Hellboy story for a long time, but The Midnight Circus is a close second. I read the original Pinocchio for the first time because of the comic and drew a tribute. This crossover was pitched to Mignola at a con, and he said it was a bit obvious. At Adrian Robinson said, I like them all, to be honest. At Vieco said, Macoma sits third on my list. Wolves of St. August gets second because of Kate, but Box Full of Evil takes the cake. And then for, uh, so let's look at our survey for the two issues or prestige. Well, we had more than five, but I did a top five here. Number five was The Midnight Circus. Number four, The Third Wish. And then the top three, number three, The Island. Yeah. Number two, Box Full of Evil. And number one, The Wolves of St. August. Nice. Nice. So that was was the community's uh, number one, two issue or prestige. 
great. For the three issues or more category, Kevin Alford said, Conquer Worm, I want more lobster. <laughs> and James Banglos said, The Crooked Man was an interesting one. For the three issues or more, according to our survey, number three was Seed of Destruction, number two, Wake the Devil, and number one, Conquer Worm. Mm-hmm. We also had our non-Mignola categories. So for those categories, we had um, two. Um, for the two issue or less with no Mignola, number three was Macoma, number two, Into the Silent Sea, and number one, The Midnight Circus. Yeah. yeah. I think that that was your order, right, Aubrey? I think that uh, you had them ordered that way, maybe? Because I think I had Macoma as number two. Yeah, so I had it Macoma, Into the Silent Sea, Midnight Circus. A lot of my picks made it into all those lists, so that's cool. And then for the one issue or less, non-Mignola, I did a top five here. Number five was They That Go Down to the Sea and Ships. Number four, The Vampire of Prague. I was surprised to see that one get a lot of love. Yeah. Abe Sapien versus Science was number three. Bride of Hell was number two, which we which was really high on our ranking here on the podcast. And then number one was Being Human. So we got some Richard Corbin love on that category. Cool. So great. Thank you, everyone who participated. Thanks for Kevin Alford for sending it out to all the Mignolaverse.com people. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. And we'll do some stuff like that in the future sure. after we've read a bunch of BPRD stories. So great. Thank you guys so much for listening. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. Okay, so tell us your thoughts on BPRDs, The Soul of Venice, and others. Send us your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. And also check out our friends at mignolaverse.com. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. On our next episode, we'll be discussing Born Again and Plague of Frogs. So pull out your back issues, trades, and et cetera, et cetera, and join us along next time for the Hellboy Book Club. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, hey, we're not plumbers. <laughs> <laughs> I love your case.